This is episode 225 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Self-Organization and Collective Behavior with Dr. Prisca Liberale. Hey everybody, this is Dr. Daylon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Dr. Prisca Liberali from the Friedrich Mischner Institute for Biomedical Research on the podcast to talk about her research aiming to understand the collective properties of organoid systems and their patterns. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming right up. But first, with over 20 cell and gene therapies projected to be approved by 2025, it's clear that there are huge commercial and medical opportunities for precision medicine. But despite this unprecedented growth, unstable infrastructure, lack of standardization, and novel scientific nuance means there's no industry blueprint for successful commercialization. Join Cell and Gene Therapy USA, a Reuters event, from September 20th to 21st and hear leaders and industry frontrunners share their successes and pitfalls. Register for free today. We're going to get things started with a paper coming from the lab of uh, Magdalena Zernika Goetz from over here in Caltech. Also, she has a sort of a joint appointment in Cambridge. And this is yet another bombshell story in the line of one of the stories that we covered last time, which is, of course, the Jacob Hanna embryo culture story. Um, this is titled Synthetic Embryos, Complete Gastrulation to Neurulation and Organogenesis. First off, here is Gianluca Amade. Um, again, this is a parallel story to what Dr. Hanna published recently. Uh, this particular story was on BioArchive not too long ago. And the premise is relatively you know, comparable to what the, the Hanna group was, was showing as well. They're able to take uh, extra embryonic endoderm cells inducing trophoblast stem cells, uh, inducible Zen-like cells, these ex uh, extra embryonic stem cells, combine them with mouse embryonic stem cells to create in vitro, de novo, in essence, these synthetic embryos, okay? So these synthetic embryos are basically combined together from an amalgamation of these ancestral stem cell populations, differentiated using approach that's similar to what the HANA group presented in their roller culture, there are some modifications. And in fact, the HANA group is actually a, uh, they are authors on this particular paper. So there's aspects of their technology that that were integrated into the uh, Zernika Goats approach here. There are a few differences worth noting. I think the this particular paper perhaps took things a little bit further when it came to the modeling side of things. They actually uh, did a PAC-6 knockout embryonic stem cell line and an approach where they're able to reduce the overall development of the neural tissue in these synthetic embryos. But again, the videos and the pictures are phenomenal here. You have a complete embryo model, not perfect, but very, you know, uh, very advanced embryo model with an extra embryonic yolk sac, uh, initiates blood island development. It's got heart-like structures, beating cells, uh, neural tubes, somites, tail buds, all gut tube, primordial germ cells. So this is quite advanced. But I think, again, the difference here between this one and the HANA group is the modeling. So looking at a Paxic knockout embryo and getting a reduction in neural tissue uh, development there. So these are complete embryoids, models of early development, early mammalian development. Um, really astounding that I think we've gotten to this point already in this field. Yeah, here we go. Uh, we unpacked a bit of this in the last episode, but here we go back to back. Uh, and I've, I've heard about this coming down the pipe for many months now. Um, so I was a bit surprised uh, when it came out of the HANA lab first. But as you said, this was posted on the archive. Um, so I would say it's a tie pretty much. But in, elements of, of both their expertise expertise in, in both these stories. And as you said, the, the roller culture, culture looks to be borrowed in this story uh, with Hannah listed as a co-author. But yeah, I mean, I don't know what more to say about this. It boggles the mind, uh, the fact that we're kind of ex vivo now with uh, gastrulation and early organogenesis kind of kicks open the door to that black box. So 
I think there's a lot of studies that are going to come from this. But as you said, there are minor differences. Similarly, they had the the transient expression in GATA here to get the Zen-like cells. So this isn't exactly you know cells just that they were native or are natural. There, it's a bit of an engineered process. And uh, similarly, the efficiency um, was not super high, but it was it seemed pretty efficient. You know, reliable, reproducible creation. Of these gastrulation stage embryos, neurulation stage, it, it's really an amazing and I think uh, pivotal step uh, moving forward. I, I really wonder, and in the months to come, we're probably going to discuss this with every guest. Uh, I really wonder uh, how these ex vivo embryos are going to be exploited to to generate organs or, or what are specialized cell types like pgcs or hematopoietic stem cells i really can't wait to see how how they're levered um but it, there's no doubt that this is you know the cornerstone and in, in uh the, the foundation of a lot of future studies that have tremendous clinical import absolutely just again emphasizing the developmental biology aspect of this it's a tremendous model for study early studying early mammalian development and i think that is the intention for for both of these groups just to get get it clear i think sure dr hannah has a startup that's coming out of the, the work that he's doing in his lab and eventually down the road who knows what the the human applications are here but i'm just looking at this from a developmental biology perspective and just appreciating the the beauty of this kind of work Absolutely. I agree. I don't want to, you know, pay short shrift to the developmental model potentially here, but I'm saying what everybody's thinking. All right, everyone, we're talking about making organs ex vivo. And by the same token, I mean, not making an embryo in order to make an organ. I think it's more about understanding the organ enlage and the rudiments in context uh, during their development. I, I think that that's something that we haven't been able to see in in uh right before our eyes you know we either have to xenograft it or or you know you can get the organoids that approximate it but this is really the whole thing in context so yeah modeling for sure but modeling organogenesis with tremendous clinical import as i said um this is moving us into a bit of a segue here you know we're gonna have june Wu on the show uh in a few weeks and uh you know, this is big news and related, the whole idea of embryo mixing, uh, this story in Cell Reports where they had a kind of island, uh, Dr. Moreau, approach three different non-human primates uh, included in this study. But of course, the, the real value of non-human primate generally um, as a model, an experimental animal uh, with clinical significance is the genetic, anatomical, physiologic similarities to humans. Um, so there's a lot of unique opportunities there to understand and study human health, disease, um, also development, also evolution. I mean, we've seen how Madeline Lancaster has exploited the iPSCs in, in non-human primate to look at these Evo-Devo type stories. So, yeah, there's a lot uh, to be done there. But, you know, there's also this idea of, of chimerism that I think this story is trying to get at. Uh, and generally i guess the 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 thrust the intent of the story at least retrospectively is trying to generate um culture conditions for non-human primate ipscs that are less established all right so there were three non-human primate species in here chimps pigtailed macaques that we don't hear a lot about and rhesus macaque right which we all know um these three species have diverged over roughly 25 million years of evolution but that's relatively closely related in evolutionary time scales. Um, so there's an idea here, I think, uh, as you've done kind of the rat mouse or different species of mouse chimerism, that these animals might be amenable to uh, embryo mixing at the pre-implantation stage and may give rise to uh, coherent uh, chimeric embryos. Um, so that was perhaps the rationale here, but in order to get there, you really need to understand how uh, these cells can be cultured uh, uh, unlike human iPS cells, these non-human primate iPS cells obviously have been, have been studied much less, but also they, they tend to spontaneously differentiate. Um, and this is likely due to uh, endogenously produced wind ligands, which has been shown in mouse and human, which is why wind inhibition has been used um, in some recipes to maintain self-renewal here. Uh, a group led by Michael Snyder at Stanford, but it had a whole catalog of big names 
um, from Stanford. Your guy, Joe Wu, uh, is on the paper. Uh, the grandpa, Irv, is there. Um, legends in the Hiromitsu Nakauchi. You know, this is this is a real hit list uh, of investigators who have been really close to uh, the field and leaders in the field. And the first thing I did there, I mean, I'll be frank, there's not a huge amount there, but I think this is a maybe set up uh, for future studies. The first thing I did is establish culture conditions for the pigment, pigtail macaque and chimp IPSCs, which were virtually studied, not at all. Um, so they established those IPSC conditions so that they could survive. And then here was the, the kicker is they did this mixing where they injected each of those types, so the chimp and the pigtail macaque, into a rhesus embryo and showed that uh, they could survive and proliferate in the embryo with this uh, ectopic expression of BCL2 that they engineered. So there's a lot of pieces in here. They had engineered cells that they injected cross species between these non-human primates, showed survival proliferation, but not really any further development through gastrular stages. So as I said, I, I think early days for this study, a bit thin, um, but a hit list of authors. And I think maybe, although we should talk about it, a setup for doing chimer experiments between non-human primates. I don't know. It seems very resource intensive. And I don't know that the the, the innovation or, or you know insight uh, there would be or justify the expense. Arun, what do you think about it? Yeah, I think, like you said, a real hit list of who's who um, over at Stanford and for this particular paper, like you mentioned, Joe Wu or Weissman, Hiro Nakauchi. And part of the reason that he actually came here in the first place to the, the States was to do this kind of chimerism work, because I think overseas is a little bit trickier to do. Also, Fabian Sushi, who used to be in grad school with me, actually, back in the day, not too long ago. But yes, I, I think it's a it's a relatively straightforward approach. It's a neat cold culture approach here with some limitations. I think the, the BCL2 overexpression is one thing to consider in part just because of the, it's an, it's not an endogenous system. You know, it's a kind of an overexpression genetic modification kind of system. Um, you know, the, the transplantation of the cross species embryos into the surrogate macaque is is informative for actually figuring out why this this happens in vivo. So I think that's the, the in vivo is is really a point of emphasis here. Um, and you know, I think again, coming back to the BCL two, we have to be figured. Uh, they actually straight set up set up it in their limitation section. They have to figure out if other genes in combination or perhaps in replacement of BCL two can can do the same thing and improve the quality of these primate naive stem cells. So I think it's a, it's a hot topic. I think Jun Wu is, is a great guest to have in the near future because he's doing exactly this kind of work, very similar in this primate chimerism, human animal uh, chimerism, uh, again, with an emphasis on developmental biology, but who knows what happens way down the road with this kind of work. Yeah. Exciting. I think, well, if, Again, being frank, I feel like this is a story that they kind of offloaded, uh, a story that was maybe a lot more exciting a few years ago and has been brewing for a long while. Um, I think the the really exciting uh, facet of these ex vivo embryos that we've been talking about from the Hannah and Goats group is, Zernica Goats group, is that, that maybe now the next step is to do these interspecies chimera experiments in the roller culture, you know, and I'd be really fascinated to see um, if maybe something that isn't isn't uh, reconcilable in vivo, you know, mouse, human, for example, which I tried 20 years ago, pretty much now, it didn't work. Uh, it hasn't worked since. I wonder if maybe you could get more cell mixing or more chim chimeric uh, organs or organogenesis combining your story and this story or stories like those. So uh, interesting uh, days ahead of us for sure. It's all about the roller culture. Maybe that is kind of the, the linchpin here, you know, driving everything forward. I guess Dr. Hannah would agree with that. <laughs> but it is an ex exciting technology that's taking developmental biology to the next step. A lot of different applications like you're alluding to. We're going to shift to uh, an organoid paper because we have to cover an organoid paper at least once on this show, right? That's how it goes. Uh, this is a different type of organoid from what we talk about Commonly, I haven't really seen this too much. This is coming from the lab of Joseph Bonventure over at Harvard. Um, he is an expert on all things kidney. 
he's the head of the kidney unit, I think, at the, the Brigham and Women's Hospital over there and has had a, an amazing lab focusing on all things kidney development and differentiation for a long time now. In fact, full disclosure, when I was at, at the Brigham myself for my postdoc in the, the Seidemann lab, I actually collaborated with the, the Bond Venture Lab for, for a bit. Um, there's a guy, Ryuji Morizane, who I think has his own lab somewhere in Boston, who's doing a lot of kidney differentiation as well. The, the title of this particular paper, and it's a nature biotech paper, so that kind of tells you the profile of something like this. Human ureteric buds organoids recapitulate the branching morphogenesis and differentiate into functional collecting duct cell types. First author here is Min Shi. Also, Kyle McCracken is on this particular paper. Um, so, you know, this is a, a, an organoid type that we don't talk a whole lot about here on the show. This is the ureteric bud, one of the critical components of uh, urine processing in the kidney. Um, the differentiation of pluripotent stem cells into functional ureteric and collecting duct or CD epithelial is needed to actually take kidney regenerative, regenerative medicine to the next step. Maybe we don't talk as much about kidney. It's perhaps not one of the, the sexier organs out there that we always talk about, like the heart and the brain, but it's so critically important. And there are a lot of congenital diseases of the kidney as well. Um, kidney transplantation is certainly a, a major need. And so here they're describing a highly efficient serum-free differentiation of, her, of human pluripotent stem cells into the ureteric bud organoids. Again, a major component of the kidney itself and the urine processing unit and functional collecting duct uh, cells. So these cells are first induced into the pronephric progenitor cells at a pretty high efficiency, and then aggregated into spheroids with a molecular signature that's pretty close to the real thing, real, pretty close to the real nephric duct. And they have this three-dimensional matrix where the, the spheres form these ureteric bud organoids, exhibit some really beautiful branching morphogenesis. If you look at the paper, you can take a look at that. Pretty similar to the fetal ureteric bud. Of course, the limitation with a lot of these organoid approaches is you know, these cells are going to be immature if you're starting with human pluripotent stem cells, but similar to a fetal-like state, uh, correct distal tip localization, um, and a lot of comparable phenotypes to the, the, the fetal ureteric bud. Okay. And importantly, the, the organoid derived cells incorporate into the ureteric tips of the progenitor niche and these chimeric, we're talking about chimeras, uh, chimeric fetal kidney explant cultures. So you have to do that kind of in vivo approach in that way to get something like a nature biotech paper out of this. Um, they also, these ureteric buds differentiate into the collecting duct organoids, which have the cell types that you need down the road. They verified that using single cell sequencing. Um, so I think it's a, it's a really cool model for kidney di differentiation, kidney disease modeling. And the, the very last part of it was a disease model, actually. So they demonstrated uh, in, a, in a sort of a disease model approach, renal electrophysiological functions. You may not know people out there that the, the renal cells have electrophysiological functions as well. They have, you know, sodium channels, ion channels that are encoded that are responsible for helping to regulate kidney function. Uh, and they're able to demonstrate this using a bunch of beautiful electrophysiology modeling as well. So an organoid type that we don't talk a lot here on the show, but I think has a, a huge unmet medical need when it comes to kidney disease, congenital kidney disease, acquired kidney disease. Um, so it's cool to see this work coming from the, the Bond Venture Lab, really an icon in all things kidney biology and medicine. I mean, kidney is we should talk about it more. Kidney is a big deal. We need our kidneys. Um, and for me, this story was really about the these branching organoids. I mean, the 3D pictures they show are really amazing. I don't know what's more of a trip, to be honest, is the fact that we're making these whole embryo, not we, but people are making the whole embryo, synthetic embryos, let's call it uh, ex vivo, or they're making these organ enlages and rudiments in, in vitro, you know, I feel like that with the chimeras in this in this one episode, Arun, I feel like we're 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 illustrating the convergence of all these different technologies, and they're all perhaps well, they're all geared towards the same uh, regenerative medic medical endpoint. But I feel like they're converging and are going to arrive at a similar time where we're going to be able to make organs. 
from the rudiments, but also make embryos. Uh, not that we will do that for any other reason than developmental biology, Arun. You've been saying developmental biology on this episode. I'm not trying to make any waves here, but um, I'm just amazed uh, that that we've come this far in terms of being able to recapitulate these organogenic processes just from a, a few cells. It, it really is striking. Yeah, it's a really cool point. And I think it's um, it's an exciting time in our field because you're seeing how all these technologies are just coming together, right? Like on in these high profile picture papers, it seems like they're all doing the same approaches, right? Of course, you start with a single cell, the organoid biology, but then if you want to model these things in vivo and see if the organoid is doing its purpose in vivo, then you do a chimera experiment. And of course, going back to the, the IPSC differentiation itself, chemically defined differentiation approaches, I feel like every single paper is starting to encompass these really cutting edge technologies coming to like a, a singularity or something like that, you know? That's right, that's what I was looking for, the stem cell singularity. Um, and just to add to that, to complicate things, we've been talking about pluripotent cells. I'm throwing in a, an adult stem cell story in the mix here uh, that was in cell stem cell. Um, it's about skeletal muscle satellite cells, which maintain and regenerate muscle tissue. We know that uh, normally kept in, in a state of quiescence. And unless you're my 13-year-old, soon to be 13-year-old, who wants a bench press for his birthday so he can bulk up and contact finish <laughs> in the lane for his basketball team. I don't know about that, Arun, but you know what he's looking for there is that injury. You know, a little bit of tearing of the muscles with weightlifting causes them to rapidly activate and proliferate and generate the progeny necessary to form the, the new muscle fibers and bulk up. Um, and normally, in a medical context, reconstruct damaged tissue. I mean, that's what we're not talking. About. We're talking. We're not talking about beach muscles here. We're talking about disease on this show, Felix. Okay, make a note. Bench press. We don't know about that yet. Um, anyway, uh, th this transition from quiescence to proliferation activation, it gets it goes bad with aging, like most things. Um, I could tell you about that. And part of that is because you need this proteostasis, right? Um, and, and other metabolic regulatory processes um, in the muscle silate stem cells to maintain the quiescence, also to activate. You can imagine, to, to, for them to chill out, it's harder to imagine, but to activate, yeah, you gotta mobilize a lot of energy, but also for the quiescence, you gotta catabolize and break down these things. Um, proteostasis, as I say, to maintain the homeostasis of the protein level. Uh, and that requires auto autophagy, right? We all know autophagy won the Nobel Prize a few years ago. But with aging, autophagy also declines. So you get the accumulation of these da damaged cellular components, particularly mitochondria, right? And that leads us to really the pith of this story. Um, that's from Pura Munoz, uh, Munoz Canoves from uh, Barcelona, uh, looking at mitochondria, okay? And mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, as we know, and it fulfills many functions. In order to fulfill those functions, there's this mitochondrial homeostasis as well. They actively remodel the morphology, the shape, uh, by this fusion or fission. They fuse together or they break apart. Um, and the, the fission in particular is a point of this story. Uh, because you need an efficiently working mitochondrial fission machinery in order to segregate the dysfunctional components of the mitochondrial, ne mitochondrial network uh, so that they can be degraded by autophagy, right? But whether or not that uh, fission process is linked to age or declines with, with age, that has not been determined, okay? So we've gone all the way down the rabbit hole. Uh, we know that the muscle regeneration goes bad with age. Now we're going down, drilling down, or... Uh, Dr. Munoz Canoves is drilling down to see if this mitochondrial fission is indeed the cause. And yes, uh, uh, it is. Um, there's loss of mitochondrial fission in satellite cells with age, uh, and that causes inefficient oxidative phosphorylation um, and increased oxidative stress, resulting in muscle regenerative failure, uh, which is caused at the cell base, at the cell level by reduced proliferation, essentially a functional loss of the satellite cells. They just don't work anymore. But here's the ticket, Arun, this is good news. Uh, the regenerative functions can be restored 
by either reactivating fission or activating fission or preventing fusion. So maybe there's an inhibitory pathway there to bulking up, Felix, think about it. Um, and the bottom line here at the end, I think conceptually is that a sh shape is the key. You know, we've talked about a lot of um, force we've talked about in the past that has a role here. Here, shape uh, is a major player in controlling stem cell regenerative function. Um, and in terms of the regenerative application or therapeutic application, um, as opposed to the cosmetic, uh, this really does have a lot of uh, implications for regenerative therapies and treatment of sarcopenia, uh, not just you know muscle decline in old age, but there's a lot of pathologic sarcopenia that could be addressed uh, using this approach. So a uh, good story from cell stem cell. Um, I'm gonna send that one to my 13 year old, get him into science at least. There's hope for, for Felix yet, but hey, I, I don't think he, I think he's gonna be just fine, all right? I mean, he doesn't have to worry about my genetics in particular because I'm going to stay skinny and puny forever. Sorry about that. Sorry. Thanks. Thanks, dad. Thanks, mom and dad. But yeah, I mean, this is a, it's a paper with, I think, not just implications in skeletal muscle biology, but, you know, mitochondrial biology is so critical for all different types of stem cell uh, differentiation. We've talked about this a lot on the show, actually, had the importance of mitochondria for stem cell maintenance, stem cell differentiation. I think the the MS, the, the muscular, you know, stem cell, uh, the skeletal muscle stem cell is perhaps the case situation and where this is studied the most, but there are other situations where mitochondrial dynamics are so critically important to, to, to regulating this. I mean, I think a few limitations here. One is the technical part of it, the, the culture approach. It's actually obtaining enough viable cells for the metabolic analyses that they're doing here causes stress on the cells themselves, and that can alter their mitochondrial dynamics. So the it could be an artifact of the culture. That's one thing to consider. Um, one other thing is the the mitotracker. They of course use mitotracker here. That's the a favorite assay of mine and beautiful imaging approach that I actually started to use back in my undergrad days. So off anytime we're talking about mitochondrial dynamics, you got to think about mitotracker and I'm glad to see it here. <laughs> Love the mitotracker. It's, I mean, there's no more brilliant a stain out there. It's automatic. Uh, but your point is really well taken. I'm glad you mentioned that. And I totally agree about the how generalizable this may be. Um, yeah, skeletal muscle stem cells, a test case uh, for adult stem cells, but I could think of a lot more cell types that are more relevant, namely in the hematopoietic system, as you can imagine, one of my favorites, but everywhere. Um, yeah, this is just a, a basic concept, I think, that, uh, it, and, and it, it bears repeating, they drilled so far down into this to go really detailed, I didn't mention it, but like actual inhibiting fission using genetic me mechanisms. So uh, there's specific players that mediate fusion and fission separately. Um, so the, it is really targetable. And these are general, general mitochondrial homeostatic mechanisms. So that they could apply in, in all cell types. So yeah, I, I think this is something that a lot of people who, who think about aging and regenerative medicine uh, are paying close attention to. Um, very exciting stuff. Uh, something perhaps we can uh, get into with our guest, uh, Priska, who, who, who's in the game, uh, studying something similar in terms of symmetry breaking, not exactly similar organization, but it all comes back in the end. Before we get to that, uh, a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Looking to add more physiological relevance to your research in testicult media provides a complete workflow for establishing, maintaining, and differentiating human intestinal organoids. Use intestinal organoid growth media to establish and maintain organoids in a more proliferative state. Then to achieve a more physiologically relevant proportion of differentiated cell types for your experiments, passenger cultures, and intestinal organoid differentiation media. Receive an offer to try intestinal in your lab by visiting us online at www.stemcell.com slash try dash intestacult. All right, everybody, we are here with Dr. Priska Liberali, who is senior group leader at the Friedrich Miescher Institute for Biomedical Research, also assistant professor at the University of Basel 
and recent recipient of the EMBO Gold Medal, a very high honor. Dr. Liberali's lab aims to understand the collective properties of organoid systems and their patterns, including how these systems allow systematic perturbation by established methods for modulating gene expression. In her lab, they study self-organization, symmetry breaking, intestinal organoid development, gastroloids, and mechanosensing mechanisms. Dr. Liberali, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Yes, good morning to you. Well, good uh, evening where it is for you now. But uh, thanks again for joining us. I'm going to jump right into it. You know, in part, all of us are, as scientists, are kind of trying to decipher uh, the language of nature. Um, and you've got a bit of an edge there uh, in doing research. I found that you're no stranger to the diversity of languages in the in the world world, not necessarily in the natural world, although you're cracking that open born in Belgium, educated across the EU, EU uh, married to a Dutchman with kids that speak five languages. Wow, uh, that's a lot of words. I don't know if I could handle all those words coming from my kids. They probably know how to hassle you in every single way. Uh, but, you know, complete, complete science fluency uh, is kind of always beyond our collective grasp. It's what we're always going for. And, and your lab is... Uh, currently using organoids to decipher the basic principles underlying tissue organization and function. But that's my description. I want to hear it in your words, preferably English, uh, among all those that you speak. Tell us what great mystery is in your work, what you're trying to decipher, and how you approach solving those mysteries. I think one of the, the biggest uh, challenge that we have in really understanding how organoids grow and how tissues in general grow is how individual cells can coordinate, how they can sense the environment to take decisions that are appropriate for the time and the space where they are. And so uh, in the past years with the development of organoids that now I think it's been almost 10 years that you know, we have been developing all different types of organoids, this has really highlighted the power of these multicellular systems where we can take stem cells more from adult stem cells or induced pluripotent stem cells, and we can grow these structures, these multicellular system that recapitulate the self-organization of these cells. And this is really an intrinsic property of these cells that are able to sense their environment, even if there's not a body, but is a lab environment, and they can make patterns and create mini intestine, mini brain, mini liver, or fully synthetic embryos like the gastroloids. And in the lab, what we try to do is um, really also to bridge biological scales because this, to grow these organoids, we need to, like sometimes weeks, if not months, and we need to follow single cells because these are really the building blocks of these tissues and to look at them grow for weeks. So we need both spatial resolution from a single cell to millimeters of tissues and temporal scales that these cells move so fast and we need to follow them for weeks. And so we built different microscope to follow these cells uh, for many days. And on the other side, we also uh, integrate different more high content methods with imaging and a transcriptomic to really have a much much more depth in the analysis of the organoids. Yeah, I mean, organoids are certainly a favorite topic of ours here on the Stem Cell Podcast, but your lab is really maximizing their utility as a workhorse for studying developmental biology and regeneration as well. You published the, that Nature paper back in 2020, characterizing a phenotypic landscape of intestinal organoid regeneration, where you actually use these intestinal organoids to tackle mechanisms of organoid formation, like you're talking about, and also the regeneration of intestinal tissue. And we'll talk about some of the amazing imaging modalities that you just mentioned in a, in a little bit. But I, I just wanted you to reflect a little bit on the intestinal organoid specifically and why that's such a great model system and a perfect fit for your work. So the intestinal organoid on one side are really organoids that come from the adults themselves. So we take adult stem cells, both from the mouse or directly from the patient. 
And in really few weeks, and this is the difference with other organoid system, we're speaking about weeks, not months, we can follow the full formation of an organ. We have a very strong spatial organization with intestinal crypts and villi. We have the formation of all the cell type we can find in vivo. And something that always really uh, fascinated me, and this is the reason we started with the intestinal organoid, is really the spatial organization that they have. This, this is script and villas, and without any body access, without anything, we can fully recapitulate this in, in vitro. And what was our first discovery when we started working with the, the organoids? Uh, initially, the plan was also quite different uh, for the start of my lab. But it, after a few weeks or almost months, we realized that we were fully recapitulative and a regenerative response in vitro. So in a way we can bottle a regenerative response of the intestine in five days in vitro. And this is extremely powerful because this is a very transient uh, um, event in vivo. And it's very hard to image. It's almost impossible to image intestinal regeneration because the tissue is damaged, you have proliferation and many transient uh, cellular states. And with the organoid, we can capture it and we can image, and this paper you were mentioning, in this paper, we, per, we, we were able to image up to 400,000 organoids. And so this landscape was really covering 400,000 organoids where we can would image them and then also find all the way compounds that improve regeneration that we could then test in vivo in mouse. Yeah, I mean, organoids from the adult, also the, the iPS derived, I think are really emblematic of the amazing pace of progress. And I can remember it just, it seems like just a, a, a few years ago, but it was a bit longer than that when, you know, the optic cuff was generated. And since then, it's just been one thing after the other. Um, in the last decade, I, I, in my opinion, has been really remarkable for me as an observer of science, not just a scientist, because I found that many of the things that I, I expected to emerge, you know, in 2050 or so, around mid-century, have matured much more quickly. Just a, a few examples, gametes and live-born fertile offspring from iPS cells, genetic engineering of human babies, you know. For worse, I would say no, no real better there, but at least the principle it's been done, it's an amazing. Um, xenotransplant of organs from pigs. And, and most recently, as you kind of alluded to there, synthetic embryos, uh, you know, gastroloids, but very recently, and we're covering it on the roundup in this episode, um, are these synthetic embryos from Jacob Hanna's group. Uh, and Reproducibility there remains a hurdle and the fidelity of these organoids to you know, native organogenesis. We're still trying to unpack all that. But as someone who's focused on a more discrete organoid system as yourself, the, the intestinal organoids, how do you feel about these synthetic embryos? How, how do you think they can you know, and should be applied, um, whether in pursuit of either basic or clinical endpoints? You know, what's your take generally on this amazing and shocking almost advance. I think it's an incredible advance in what we can do both in basic research and in translation for women health, especially. We have been, you know, since years behind there. Uh, I think the, the most regenerative uh, tissue is the endometrium and we don't basically know anything about it. And that is regenerating every month. And, you know, there are aspects that we really don't know. So I think these synthetic embers with the different endometrium organoid, the placental organoid, these would be an incredible advance in um, our understanding of reproduction and in general woman health. And I think that would be something that for the future will be very important. I think clearly, and I think something you touched very, uh, I think really that's very important, is that we need to cover the basic, the groundwork to understand what we are recapitulating. With intestinal organoid, I think the, the full impact we were able to have is that at the beginning, we could really capture what we were recapitulating. It's a regenerative response, and that's what we're looking at. We're not looking at development. We are not looking at homeostasis. That's what we're looking at. And I think for the synthetic embryo will be even more important. And this is some of the work we have been doing on gastroloid in trying to understand which part are actually 
an artifact of in vitro systems and which part are the actual recapitulation, you know, what we can recapitulate from the in vivo. Because otherwise we are still studying how individual cells self-organize that I think it's still very interesting. But this, we might have many ways to arrive somewhere while development has might, might have just a single or two. So I think that that would be very important for the future, the groundwork on understanding the, the comparison between the in vivo and the in vitro, and not as an endpoint, but how we get there. Yeah, I think whether you're focusing on developmental biology using some of these organoid models or embryo models, or whether you're looking at regeneration, I think part of what drives the discovery and certainly what drives the discovery are, are amazing technologies that are intersecting with, say, organoids. And of course, your lab has a huge expertise in imaging, um, this exceptional imaging capacity capability that you bring to your intestinal organoid analyses. You actually just put up this manuscript on bioarchive, establishing this multi-scale light sheet organoid imaging framework, which is capable of turning long-term light sheet imaging of intestinal organoids into, quote, digital organoids. We might have to talk a little bit more about that. Um, so combined with some of the high throughput imaging approaches that you were mentioning earlier, it seems like this light sheet tech is really giving you an unparalleled scale and resolution with which to actually study organoid biology. So tell us a little bit more about this new manuscript and in particular, how some of these next gen imaging approaches such as light sheet can really take your organoid studies to the next level. Yeah. So on on aspect, as, as I mentioned, the, the high content imaging is great for the depth, the, the numbers of uh, organoid we can have. This is just insane. And so we can have, in a way, an average dynamics of an organoid growth because we look at 100,000 of organoid growing. With the light sheet, clearly this, the, the throughput is much lower, but we can follow every individual cells for weeks, their dynamics, their fate, the emergence of the different fate, and especially combining it with the coordination of the system and the mechanical property of the organ. is is a question of uh, shape and function, of uh, fate and, and form, as we want to call it. It's really part of understanding how these cells are able to sense and sense both local locally and both also very long range to just coordinate their behavior. And this we can do only with the light sheet. And for example, even in organoid formation, we have these crypts that form exactly at the same time. The crypt form exactly at the same time. Would be great to see if in vivo happens in the same way, because that would be a very important step in coordination. We don't want randomly crypt forming all over the intestine. These are probably formed all together. And these are mechanical property that we can record of the single cells. And for the other aspect that I think the light sheet will bring is the possibility to perturb individual cells. I think looking at organoid and complex multicellular system in general, we have so many different cellular states, so many rare events that happened at a certain point and have consequence days later. And it's very hard to find a causality, direct causality between a rare event and a later uh, consequence. And so with the light sheet, we can now, or we are also trying to like have optical perturbation of these rare events. And so in this recent paper that was just accepted now, um, uh, what we are, for example, we saw is that these regenerative state, these cells that are highly proliferative, also have highly, higher probability of um, cytokinesis failure. That means their, their division is just not proper. And this makes sense. We see some of these also in vivo. Because the cells, what do they need to do? They need to cover. Their first goal is to make sure that the intestine is sealed outside, inside. That is the main point. And what we see is that these cells don't have checkpoint and have this very rare event of cytokinesis failure, but then the cells continue to divide. They don't die. And normally with a, a cytokinesis failure, then the cells die. These ones continue dividing, but they never get into the crypt. So there's a tissue scale um, control in order to have, you know, fidelity on genome for stem cells later on. And I think this is, you know, these would be aspects that we would never have found with any other technologies. These we are speaking very fast event, very rare event, but that might have very strong consequence later on also in cancer because, or even if you imagine 
many patients with inflammatory bowel disease or Crohn's disease have a much higher probability of cancer because they are in a chronic regenerative state. So I think that these, um, so now we are running a lot of, uh, we have organoid from hundreds of patients, both from Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel disease or colon cancer, and really running these slide sheet movies. And we even have maybe other ways to then increase the size of the organoid we can image. So I think that's, will be uh, the future, this and some control, light based control of the individual cells. Wow. I mean, you're talking about the future, but even in the present, it is, it's a lot, right? I mean, you're talking about none of the, the study you just described wouldn't be possible without being able to visualize all of these organoids, you know, in parallel to catch these rare events. And now you're there talking about scaling that into like a translational uh, phase where you're looking at hundreds of patients. And, you know, this is, I think, is again, emblematic of, of what's going on in the field and generally in science and the world today is big data. You know, we got a lot of information um, and it's been a part of cutting edge science for a long while now, but in the last decade, to me, it seems like uh, research studies have been generating these digital archives, as you kind of describing there, that can be browsed and serve as a resource for subsequent work, subsequent work. And, you know, I, I guess the best template for this in the modern era is the Human Genome Project, which was this multi-billion dollar enterprise, totally changed medicine. And it served as like a reference, right, that now everybody could go back to that. But nowadays, the, the same amount of data is posted pretty much every day on GEO, right? Um, add to that the digital cellular atlases, uh, like from the Allen Institute that have become relatively commonplace and, uh, you know, single cell sequencing archives that you get. Also the preprint servers like BioArchive, where you just recently posted, congratulations on getting that accepted, um, that enable the distribution of data broadly and quickly. It, it just really feels like an aggregate that, that primary research is becoming really data-driven. And it's also migrating a bit to the digital sphere. Um, so looking at your web-based digital organoid viewer a, as an example, uh, do, do you think that like this is a, a, a resource where people go back? You talk about these rare events. Is the idea that people come back to these digital resources and generate new insight um, from these existing re uh, resources? Or is it more just a, a platform for educating, a resource for, you know, as a reference? Um, can you elaborate on how you make science from this published science now that it's like a digital archive and resource? Yeah, so I can speak so specifically for, for example, the, the organoid and the, the digital organoid, probably in a few years will be faster to remake an, a movie than to retrieve terabytes of data because the problem of the, the big data is also the management and the lifetime of data. Where do we store this? How can someone go back to this movie generated seven years ago to follow that rare event if we are speaking about terabytes of data that need to be stored somewhere, that need to be accessed somewhere, can be need to be visualized somewhere. And so I think for the imaging aspects, this is a big challenge that we are trying right now. For example, there is a, a big, um, the Human Cell Atlas from the Chang Zuckerberg, from the CZI also, and there, for example, we are part of the, the organoid group. And one of the big challenge that we are now facing is the imaging portal. For the, the single cell portal where you can access all single cells, it's more, uh, let's say, uh, ideal to have meta information. So information about the data, how you can upload them. For imaging, we are still very far. Hmm. Also on understanding what is a common imaging framework we can all use, even if it's like a TIFF file that we don't use, like uh, they are like HDFI file, and then there's this, the, 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 some new files right now that we are really exploring. And one of the big effort is really a community effort to try to uh, really speak with other scientists that do a lot of imaging to try to, to at least converge in at least as imaging file that we can use. That would be already a big step in the sharing later on. That said, on the more 
general from at the end images can be a feature can be extracted then we have data that is independent of where they come from and i think these are becoming more and more accessible to everybody and are getting really used more to integrate different data set mm. that said i still think that as biologists compared to other fields still will require time then you know can we just take that organoid sequenced somewhere and just integrate the data and compare them with mine. It gets very hard from, uh, I still remake all the data, <laughs> almost for a lot of different aspects. And if they are really key for the project, we regenerate a lot of the data to make sure that are exactly in the control environment that we have. Mm. That said, I think the, the, the data-driven science is fortunately taking some space and uh, and we are getting more you know for very long uh, i was criticized and many of us were criticized on fishing expeditions and then uh, on the while i think that sometimes being unbiasedly data driven and finding patterns in the data is one of the most exciting uh, aspects of the science we do yeah, I feel like the fishing expedition, I mean, it's been a universal criticism for some time now, but I, I think people are starting to come around to it, especially funding agencies slowly, in part because, you, you know, maybe, maybe not. Um, at least in my junior career, I've kind of seen that shift happen over time as some of these technologies has, have become more accessible. And like you mentioned, science these days, is, it's just so interdisciplinary. We're not all just basic biologists anymore, basic stem cell biologists who are doing the science. We have to talk to experts in, in imaging, experts in computational science, you know, data science, just to manage some of these massive repositories that we're talking about. And, you know, it's not just in the context of the projects, this interdisciplinarity, but also the training itself. And we've talked to a lot of people on this show who didn't start off as stem cell biologists, but kind of fell into the field after training in a totally different field and ultimately following their passions and becoming stem cell biologists. And you also come from a really unique background as a physical chemist who trained in membrane, membrane trafficking as your PhD, high content screening in your postdoc, and now ultimately working with organoids. So could you reflect a little bit about the advantages that some, you know, the, some of these interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary trainings can bring? And would you go as far as to say this is something that we have to do these days as junior scientists, you know, doing some sort of interdisciplinary training, having a training that's outside of the box and not just in the realm of basic biology? What do you think? Yes. No, I, for me, I think that the, the biggest advantage is it gives me and it continues to give me because I change frequently. I like to, to change and take in new challenges and is the fact that I go in completely unbiased. I have zero expectation. I start in a field where, yeah, I need to catch up with the literature, but I don't have this basic knowledge that is just come from a certain type of environment, a certain type of training. So I come in completely unbiased and, uh, and bring in also new technologies, new ideas, new ways of looking at the problem. And I think that is the other part. And this would be, I think, the, the biggest advice I would give to, to young scientists that to really go and, and look at how people think differently, how they approach a problem differently. I was speaking with a physicist uh, and uh, he was like, oh, physicists are very reductionist. They can like narrow down the problem to nothing. And then um, biologists can deal with complexity. And then it's like, and what are chemists in all this? <laughs> yeah. And so we spend days on trying to figure out what are chemists. And actually, they, I think they're, they're some of the most uh, data-driven scientists. They're very quantitative in their way. We have been trained in measuring the hell out of anything you would give us. So that is what we have. And then, and, and how chemistry was born that, you know, Lavoisier was waiting, waiting stuff before and after. And then there's a periodic table that is in a way finding patterns in, 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 in data, mm. actually. So I think that's um, what maybe a chemist is. Maybe. And 
And, and I think it's important to have this different perspective and not feeling intimidated. Uh, some scientists and biologists, especially more old school, would say, oh, I don't believe what I don't understand. And, uh, and I think that's a problem. We need to be able to believe and, and, and to believe maybe something. And that doesn't mean that we should believe what we don't understand, but we should be able to understand broader the different technologies, to be more critical in what they're actually measuring, uh, and to, to have really understanding how different people can really contribute to, to our work. Yeah, I think that's what makes a great scientist there. You're describing it, the being you know, overly reductive or, or making things too complex. Um, and we're all trying to reduce complexity, right? So maybe that's where the chemist is, right in the middle, seeing the patterns. And, and I think in you, you have all those influences. I think you're all those types of scientists, um, at least in spirit. And it lets you think outside the box, as you describe, um, and and really believe a thing without necessarily having all the data and able to pursue it. Um, but that, I would argue, is because you're just this one person and you're able to reconcile all these different parts of yourself in this single mind um, towards a problem or problems. Um, but when you're talking about a team, it gets more complicated, right? And you've been very successful as a relatively, you know, new group leader, now very well established, but, you know, you put your team together in, in the last decade, less than a decade, um, to great success. Um, and that, I think, is a challenge for a lot of young PIs. Arun, I'm sure, could could identify, I myself have identified with that problem of trying to combine these individual talents in a manner that it, in a manner that exceeds their combinatorial value alone. You know, we're talking synergy and cracking the the toughest problems. So what's your approach there? And more importantly, uh, how do you know, or maybe as importantly, how do you know, when a trainee is is meeting their potential, you know how do you how do you lead them um, to to meet or exceed their potential? And uh, to start is like is to have them have like be more than just them individually and to have fun because I think that this part of this job is you know the fun part and the, and, and the curiosity the drive that comes with this and. Um, so for me, um, I have a, also a coach for leadership and uh, uh, um, mentoring and the lab. So he's his name is Paul. He's great. <laughs> so I meet Paul regularly. And um, but what we did is, for example, also a personality trait of who I am. Uh, you know, on, on the coaching side and and understanding part of of the team and and the strengths and weaknesses and also the the acceptance of the diversity we are just different and you know i had a very my first phd student that she came in the office and saying oh i love science but i'm not like you and said like fortunately <laughs> you're not like me and uh, it's really to integrate but that doesn't mean you know like you can be less successful or like you will have your different ways of doing it so i think especially for me for the team is to have to be able to have all the diverse character in the in the lab so to balance the different energies that are some are maybe very fast but less attentive to details some are slower and much more attentive to details and also to combine how i interact with them in a way to respect those timing and these aspects and clearly i need all of this in the lab uh, one of my students asked me once, but do you prefer to work with the people more similar to you or more different? So I'm not someone that loves details. So if you make me write figure legend a full afternoon, I'm not very happy. <laughs> so if I receive a manuscript with beautifully written uh, figure legend, I just love it. And uh, uh, but you know, and then on the other side, I need maybe to work a bit more on the discussion, on more provocative ideas, on some other aspects. So I think it's respecting this part and have a balanced lab in this part. I think that helped a lot. And to try to find the other aspect is I think empowering them in a way. They are grown-ups. <laughs> they are you know people that start a graduate school. There are other people that do completely different type of universities. 
And at that point, they're already in the workforce and they're completely you know, thrown in, big meetings. And while for us, we keep our graduate student, and that doesn't mean that anything should change, but trying to understand what they want and who they are and how to reach their own goals. And all goals are, you know, that's the power of what biological science are right now. It's so fast moving field. They're small biotech, they're a university position. There's, we see this all disposed of moving to, to companies, but it's normal. That's just, it's our future. Hmm. So I think it's, uh, that's what I, I, I try in the lab. We have also, let's say, one-to-one meetings uh, end of the year that are not scientific. It's just, are you satisfied with your year? Am I satisfied with your year? Are you satisfied with me? You know, it, it goes through, at, it's at least an hour, an hour and a half with every lab member. So intense November, December <laughs> to go through. But I think that's very helpful also for them to set their goals uh, concretely. Hmm. Yeah, you talk about diversity in personality, but there's also diversity in work style, as you mentioned, and also diversity in culture, because certainly we're fortunate, you know, in both the, the US and also in, in Europe in a lot of situations to work in highly multicultural environments, which I think are beneficial to science and doing science. We've had the great privilege on this show to talk to a lot of folks from many amazing institutions around the world, including a number from Europe. And I think one thing that I find really refreshing, and you've kind of reflected on this as well, is how collaborative and multicultural the scientific training is within Europe. And this is just me me looking at it from an outsider, from an American perspective. Uh, we've had a lot of guests who have trained in multiple countries in Europe, yourself included, uh, have experienced many different cultures over the course of their training, which I, in my opinion, is actually kind of a contrast to the somewhat more homogenous training style that we experience here in the US, at least when it comes to traveling to different places to do your training. Because I think for most American scientists, we tend to stick within the US to do our training. I mean, there are a few exceptions. Uh, Madeline Lancaster comes to mind, for example. So could you reflect on that process of scientific training in Europe, that kind of multiculturalism, and in particular, how that unique brand of multiculturalism could strengthen European science in general? Yes, I think one aspect that does really reinforce is really the, the European Research Council and generally the European funds, where uh, both that could go from the EU, but also if you include EMBO and FEBS, these are all fellowships that really promote uh, movement inside Europe. And so you need to move to for your postdoc fellowship. And I think that's really important to have. Clearly, Europe is smaller. You move inside US, it's almost moving inside Europe as a distance. <laughs> so I think that that's uh, one aspect that is. And I think the other uh, big challenge that's I see on the movement between US and EU is the funding system. That if you are inside the funding system that goes from the age you move to get an HHMI if you're in a PI or come back to Europe and have, uh, for example, an uh, ERC grant. So these are aspects that if you are in a system, it's very hard to go in another one and go back. You start at a certain point to be linked to your funding system and then it gets very hard to move around. The other aspect that I think is also different, we have, le- at least that is my feeling from being in Europe, we have a bit less these more Ivy League university place, you have to be place, you know, something that I have the feeling in the US is very important. Here we have a lot of small institute like the FMI, we are 20, 20 group leader in Basel, and is one of the institute with a higher number of ERC grants in Europe. So we have very small plays that are managing to really concentrate really great science all over uh, Europe. And for example, this institute, there are something like 15 all over Europe. They are part of an initiative altogether. So I think there are some initiatives that really help the movement also of people in yeah, it's a shame to me. I always think how scientists get siloed up. Uh, and I guess that's part of the reason you get stuck with these funding tracks or funding apparatus. And then there's really not a lot of movement between them. But I mean, the science is great all around. And that's what's so exciting about being on this show, being an observer and reporter on science. And lest we forget China. I just saw a study that said, you know, 27 percent 
of the most one percent, you know, top one percent cited papers are coming out of China, which is now number one, surpassing the U.S. So we need to be more inclusive on this show and recognize the great science all around the world, starting with you, Dr. Liberali. This was such a great chat, um, and, and we really appreciate. Uh, the advice you've shared. I hit you up there on how to lead in the lab, but uh, we're not quite done with you yet. I got a couple of uh, science peripheral questions, starting with another little kernel that we hope you can give us. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, either professional or not? Hmm. Let's see. Probably like it's a more uh, like it's not professional, but I use it. It's from my mom. And the, the thing is, um, if you can change it, why to worry? If you cannot change it, why to worry? If there's a problem. And I think that this is, in the hard moments, the thing that just come up every time. If I can change it, I just do it, and I don't worry. If I can't, I can't. And so I should stop worrying. So I think this is one of the best way, advice I got that I use quite often. I love that. I'm going to steal that and I'm going to paraphrase directly. Well, not paraphrase. I'm going to quote you because I love the words. Why to worry? Um, my youngest son, instead of saying, uh, what, what does it matter? He says, what matters when he says something doesn't matter? I, I love little turns of phrase like that. Uh, so I'm taking that one from you. Thanks. I'm taking that from your mom, actually. Mom knows best. Appreciate that, uh, Mrs. Liberale. Um, finally, fill in the blanks for me, Leia. First, when I am not conducting research, I am outdoor, somewhere outside, on the sea, on the mountain, somewhere. <laughs> well, I've been uh, I've been to Switzerland. It's quite beautiful. So you could choose a, a lot worse places to get outside. Um, if I could have one superpower, it would be flying. Flying somewhere, flying to meet all my friends and colleagues all over, or yeah, or traveling, uh, or, or you know, traveling time, you know, go somewhere. But, so I think both would be traveling or space or time fast. You don't, you don't go small. Flying or space travel—that's uh, ambitious. But if anybody could do it, I think it's you. Finally, I can't get started in the day without. And my ginger shot. Huh. Very nice. What is That's a that? unique one. We haven't heard that one before. I can get me some ginger <laughs> shots, Arun. Not too much coffee. That's the problem. And so uh, to avoid the coffee intake, the ginger shot is just perfect. Wow. You're sharing all your secrets. Get ready, editors of Nature and Cell. I'm getting ginger into my program. All right, Dr. Liberale, again, thank you so much uh, for that. Hopefully it does me some good there with the ginger, but I'm not going to hold my breath. Um, it really was such a great chat and uh, a joy um, to have this conversation with you. And we'd love to have you back again soon. Probably won't be long. Maybe we can talk about this paper that was just accepted. Uh, thanks again so much for joining us. Thank you both. That brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks so much for listening, guys. You can catch us again in a couple weeks. We'll be back with you then.